0: This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. In this episode, we interview Admiral Jonathan Greenert about maritime strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Let me briefly introduce the admiral. His more extensive bio is linked in the show notes to this podcast. Admiral Jonathan Greenert holds the John M. Shalakeshvili Chair in National Security Studies at MBR. He is a career Naval officer, having served for 40 years in the U.S. Navy, culminating in his appointment as the 30th Chief of Naval Operations from 2011 to 2015. He is a recipient of various personal and campaign awards, including the Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and the Vice Admiral Stockdale Award for Inspirational Leadership. His recent publication, "Tenets of a Regional Defense Strategy, Considerations for the Indo-Pacific is available for free download from the NBR website. The Indo-Pacific at present is a hotspot of political turmoil and territorial disputes. Discovering solutions for these issues requires critical strategic planning and innovation. Fresh from hosting a panel event of International Navy Chiefs, Admiral Greenert provides valuable insights to address the dynamic challenges in the Maritime Commons. In this wide-ranging conversation, he discusses the diverse complexities of the Indo-Pacific and explores possible avenues for U.S. policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Asia Insight. So Admiral Greener, it's a privilege to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here.
0: So you've served at the highest levels of leadership in the U.S. Navy. Uh, In your 40-year career as a U.S. military officer, uh, you started as a submariner, Uh, you've commanded a nuclear-packed um, submarine. Uh, you've advised the president as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And you are appointed by the president twice to serve as the nation's 30th chief of naval operations, uh, responsible for all the personnel, assets, budget and operations around the world. So, but before all that happened, you are I believe, a teenager from Butler, Pennsylvania. So my first question is about you. How Did you get started, and how did you get interested in
1: the Navy? You know, it it was an iterative journey, Dan, to say the least. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm from Butler, Pennsylvania, which is a steel town in western Pennsylvania. My dad was a steel worker. I was one of six kids. I'm right kind of in the middle, number four, with uh, three girls uh, ahead of me, one younger sister and then a youngest brother. But the deal was, uh, my dad came to me one day looking at my report card in ninth grade, and he said, this is not all that good. Pretty average. And son, we're about out of money. You know the old saying, we're out of money, time to think. Uh If you've heard that, remember that. It's attributed to many people. But anyway, he said, uh, it looks like you're going to be working at the mill and whatever it takes to motivate a young person, that was one of them. So I said, <laughs> I am gonna, want to get out of the town and not just be kind of stuck here, which is what I thought uh, back then. So I was looking for a way to go to a school that I didn't have to pay for. If I get a scholarship, grants, or whatever, and the Naval Academy of West Point were two of the four colleges I applied to. So I was accepted very late to the Naval Academy, and the plan was go there. Uh, finish four years, get a degree, pay back what was then four years. It became five years during my time there. But nonetheless, go to school, pay it back in the Navy and move on. I had no preconceived understanding of the Navy. To me, it was just a means to an end. It wasn't the end, if that makes sense to you. So that was kind of phase one, go to the school. So while in school, uh, I, I was informed that Submariners make one hundred dollars a month more than <laughs> aviators or surface. Wow, yeah. So you can see this. I became a mercenary, right? So I I chose to go. Actually, I was, It was. A, it's an elite force, smaller, and I wanted to go do that. And with it comes an education in nuclear engineering. My major at the academy was ocean engineering. So you get then you get another uh, certification, for lack of a better term, and it builds up your portfolio. So once again, my plan be done at five years now at this point i'm in my fourth year uh in the navy and i met my now wife darlene and uh she was she had been in the navy for a year she was a school teacher and she was explaining to me it isn't all that great out there because i was convinced all i got to do is get out of this place and i'll go make money and my life will be great single guy and all that stuff you know so um what happened was the Reagan years came about right before I left. All of a sudden, we had a 25% raise. I'm getting a bonus for being a nuclear submariner. I'm in love with this girl. We got married. And I really didn't have so such a great plan out of the Navy at this point. So I said, all right, one more tour, one more tour. She loved the kind of nomadic life of changing stations. And so the, then the horizon became, all right, let me get command of a submarine. Now, everybody that is in the military, I mean, it is really an iconic thing. It is a focus of effort to, to be in charge, to get command of a battalion if you're in the Army or the Marine Corps, uh, a squadron of, of planes if you're in the Air Force or Naval Aviation, submarine or destroyer. So that became like the 20-year point, basically, if you finish that. Then you're under a pension. So after a period of time of a wife that supports me, moves around, raising the kids, and we are we had a wonderful time, lived in uh, – we didn't live in Japan at that time. We lived in Hawaii, the uh, West Coast, and it was fine. So we're coming up on 20 years, and that's the end of like phase two. And we decided – she decided, uh, well, let's go back to Washington. We were in Hawaii at the time. And we'll sort it out there because I was assigned into an area of the Navy in financial management. So now instead of just nuclear submarine and all that, I'm into financial management, another element and a new understanding of how the federal budget comes together. So after about four years of that, I am now a young captain. And it's really in my mindset, it's time to move on. You're 42 years old, uh, you got to get on with your life. We were assigned to Japan uh, as the chief of cha- uh, staff for the commander of the Seventh Fleet, and it then it just opened my eyes to uh, Asia, the enormity of it, the huge economic factor, political, geopolitical factor, and the the function that the United States and our Department of Defense and State, because we interfaced with uh, the embassy in Japan and other embassies, Korea, et cetera the function we played in that world. And um, and so I was fascinated by it. Again, my wife is still enjoying the movement. My children, our children loved living in Japan. It was an iconic experience, um, never replicated again. You know, so that became sort of phase three uh, to to see that element. And then uh, a little bit of a surprise. uh, I was selected to be an admiral, uh, which is a little bit like starting over again. You are an executive, truly. But, in fact, you're starting over again. You, you What you do and the, the functions you perform, similar to business, when somebody becomes the executive vice president or the vice president or the senior vice president, your outlook is different. You're output-based. Uh, it's not what you do personally. It's how you, uh, uh, how you train people to do things, how you inspire people, etc. That kind of became phase three, just to be an admiral. Uh, And so now I'm at the age of roughly 44, uh, approximately, and uh, we are living in Guam. That was our first flagged station. And then back to Washington, more financial management, the details of putting together a, a service budget and then going and testifying up on Capitol Hill and learning those elements, all important. And then, frankly, uh, Dan, out of the blue, I was asked to throw my hat in the ring to be a service chief, to be the head of the Navy, basically the CEO of the Navy called the chief of naval operations. You know, you're not in charge of naval operations. That's, that's frankly uh, an old traditional name. You're, you're the chief of the Navy. You organize, you train, and you equip. Uh, we were selected to do that. We were, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, we were nominated by the president, interviewed with President Obama. That was an experience. Uh, then going through the confirmation, which as a guy understands the Hill, you know, it goes into that. And then four years running the Navy. Uh, that's, you know, phase five and uh, fascinating thing. So the next thing you know, what, well, four years in the Navy became 40 years in the Navy <laughs> Uh, through an iterative uh, or iterative excuse me process uh, that I just kind of laid out
0: that 's a fascinating trajectory and it seems like even at a young age you had the concept of ends, ways and means <laughs> In mind, that sort of carried you through all this this way uh, and <clears throat> I could dig a lot deeper and this could become a master class on personal growth um, but we do want to dive into the subject of your new report uh, and the new event um, <laughs> on maritime security that we have today. And so so if we dig into your uh, new MBR special report called the Tenets of a Regional Defense Strategy, you note two poles. So on the one hand, you note that North Korea is the most pressing national security issue. On the other hand, China is the greatest long-term security challenge. Between the two, how do you balance prioritizing resource and attention between these two challenges?
1: Well, if I were to try to provide an analogy, uh, folks in their daily lives deal with urgent matters. You have to get this done now. Uh, And that can be as simple as uh, paying the parking attendant to get out of, you know, get your car back. I mean, it's, it's not like that, but you get my point. And important matters, the things that are truly longer term important for your health and well-being and whatever. North Korea is urgent. We have to deal with this situation. We are where we are. There's a whole host of arguments as to how did we get here. But we are where we are with regard to that. A nuclear capable, uh, still I would consider rogue nation. We don't know that much about it. Unfriendly and, and contrary to our principles. And on the other side of an ally that we've been with since the 50s. That's the situation. That is an urgent matter we have to deal with. We cannot take our eye off of just like you I, everyone can't take our eye off the long-term issues of health, you know, financial well-being, blah blah blah, so that we have a future. And to me, uh, China will be the challenge of uh, it's, it'll be multi-generational challenge. They have the economic capacity, the for now demographics. Some would argue their demographics are not looking good, the outlook, that is true. And clearly a military, worthy of our attention. They are a near-peer uh, competitor, as we say.
0: So one of the places of growing challenge that you've brought a lot of attention to compared to other experts uh, is the East China Sea. Uh, so what are the main challenges facing the U.S. in the region?
1: In East China Sea in or Eastern. in the East China Sea? The, the issue that concerns me, for lack of a better term, is the fact that we have a disagreement Uh, On sovereignty, the Senkaku Islands, uh, there's other names for them, but the Senkaku Islands, I'll just use the general term, uh, it involves energy. So these are two nations that each need energy, a lot of natural gas reserves, a lot of other uh, ore, O-R-E, for various uh, resources for energy. A sovereignty, each claims some of the islands, taken relatively soon, that is within our uh, the last hundred years, which is short by Asia terms, as you know. And uh, they don't like each other, okay? There's World War II, they were enemies, and one occupied the other's country. Japan occupied China. And it didn't go well, and we all know about those, the atrocities, etc. So, the and they're not uh, communicating well. Now, this is improving. If you and I were to talk a year ago, let's say, I'd say they're not communicating at all. There is no consistent way for them to bring to bear this discussion over this dispute over the Senkakus, this sovereignty claim. So with all of that in mind, I look at the East China Sea and I say, you know, you only you have only two nations. They are both substantial military power. Uh, China would pose a significant problem in a military conflict, especially maritime with, uh, I'm sorry, Japan would be a, a significant challenge to China. Of course, vice versa, obviously. We are allied with Japan. So we're there for the duration, and we've been very clear on that. On the administ- We acknowledge the administrative control they have over the Senkakus. Compared with the South China Sea, you have seven nations, some would say eight, with a claim to a territory. Uh, you have a means to, to deal with that, the United Nations Convention for Lawless Sea all of them are signatories. Some people, folks seem to think the United States is embroiled in this. We have no claim, per se, in this. We just want stability in the region and to uh, reduce conflict. And we, we tell China, you should be using the international norms and means, you the know, United Nations Convention for Law, the Sea and the Tribunal Court associated with it, to resolve these. So folks frequently, and it happened this morning, uh, folk, uh, someone from Vietnam, representative, asked a question, what are you going to do in this claim involving Vietnam? And the question was actually first answered by our Australian colleague, Vice Admiral Noonan, who said, hey, here's our policy. There are ways to discuss and to resolve these peacefully, and we should use those. So my point is this. Uh, the South China Sea involves many nations, number one. Number two, the the claims are many and varied. There aren't any real um, uh, existential or major energy issues. There are rumors and some claims that there are ener- there's a lot of energy uh, buried in the South China Sea. Okay, but nobody is uh, removing it from others yet in this regard. So it's not like one versus the other. There is a, a lot of fora to have a conversation about this. I mentioned on the United States Convention of Law of the Sea. There's the, the ASEAN, you know, Asian nations, they get together and they're, heck, they're all involved there, including China. So there are many means to have a conversation, number one. South China Sea is slowly evolving, number two. Three, there's nothing n- that is truly existential. Four, there aren't any really ma- nations uh, in the South China Sea disputes to seriously challenge China such that if conflict broke out, um, this could spill immediately uh, to the United States and, you know, ruin stability in all of Asia. The situation in East China Sea, as I described, is different. And I, I think fraught with uh, more potential danger. Again, good news, recent developments, China and Japan are talking about a consistent way to uh, arbitrate what they have consistent way to communicate between the, the, those flying there, military planes uh, and uh, surface ships there uh, to preclude a miscalculation. So we're on the right track there, I think. I still think it warrants continued attention.
0: So East China Sea, South China Sea are a number of the potential hotspots you've identified in your report. Um, in discussing this, you brought in um, the Admiral from Australia uh, whom we brought today. So let's bring in our allies and partners. So at today's event, uh, we had retired or active uh, admirals representing Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, and the US. Uh, and one of the common themes they raised was the importance of joint naval operations. Why is coordination and cooperation so important here?
1: Well, I think uh, when maritime folks get together, uh, the conversation can be a little easier because, We all operate in a medium that does not involve sovereignty or has a very minor. uh, We're talking about 1% of sovereignty. If you're in somebody else's uh, national waters in the 12-mile limit, that's their water and you acknowledge it. That is rare. You're probably going to go visit them. They're probably a friend. So we operate in international waters. There's no disputing on that. It is easier to get together and have a conversation number one. Number two, if you're at sea, it's inherently danger. We share a common danger, for lack of a better term. And we all know that the forces of nature exceed anything man can come up with, including nuclear. Uh, Number three, there are, in fact, uh, common uh, missions, tasks, functions, challenges that we all have. Number one, I mentioned, a natural... Natural disaster: a typhoon, a hurricane, a tsunami, uh, a volcanic eruption. Uh, number two: none of us uh, tolerate pirates, piracy. Uh, in piracy. Uh, number three: uh, uh, narco-terrorism uh, uh, is an element that none of none of the nations support. And and I'm talking about China. I'm talking about Russia. Even Iran uh, has supported. Uh, narco, ter- uh, excuse me, precluding narco terrorism. So uh, these these are elements, these common challenges that we know we, the collective maritime nations and the leaders, know we need to work together on this. One nation, one navy cannot take care of all of these challenges alone. It won't work. There are things that occur, natural disasters, that are frankly agnostic to the nation that they influence. A typhoon runs through Asia Pacific. Uh, we all know that it starts generally in Typhoon Alley, somewhere around Micronesia, Guam, and overruns the Philippines, Taiwan, and Japan sometimes, China, it's, everybody's involved. And the devastation is such that we all have to pitch in. So, Dan, the point is when they get together, uh, there are issues between nations and sometimes between alliances. But you need to start at the top. And if you can work together as a joint combined coalition of operations for these natural disasters or common challenges that I mentioned, there are others, nuclear, et cetera, uh, that is a good stepping stone to realizing that as a professional mariner, it would be our responsibility to not have a miscalculation between our two navies cause a conflict. And history is ripe with all kind of examples where a miscalculation, right? The Duke of Ferdinand in World War One, World War II had examples where miscalculations uh, have caused things to go bad. And it shouldn't be a military person, particularly a professional mariner, saying, well, I'm going to your respective political boss and saying, I'm sorry this happened, but we're shooting at each other right now due to a miscalculation in the pick the, the place over to you to, to resolve. Uh, we probably ought to resolve this pretty fast because it's escalating. And I don't know that I can control it. That's a travesty. And I, it is acknowledged by, frankly, every Mariner leader uh, around the world.
0: So it seems that at least among our allies and partners, uh, there's an interest in maintaining the sanctity of the commons. Um, of the number of um, uh, domains that you've mentioned, humanitarian operations, you know, nuclear, uh, natural disasters, do the allies and partners uh, share our priorities, the America's priorities in the maritime domain?
1: No, not necessarily. You know, I would add to your allies and partners, I'd add potential adversaries, as I said, for almost every country of the world. So Russia comes with the International Sea Power Symposium, the Western Pacific Naval Symposium. Uh, there's a, uh, a European element, an Indian Ocean. Iran attends some of these. Now, um, political realities preclude attendance at some versus others. If the atmosphere is not good, uh, you know, among diplomatically and politically, is it's not in good form for the heads of Navy to have a chit-chat session when, you know, the two uh, maybe ministries of state or defense are arguing or, you know, so you, you see my point. Uh, but anyway, back to the priorities. Um, if you start at the top, the general safety of all mariners on the open ocean, like I said, common, medium, international waters, you work your way down there. I mentioned some. It's common. But then you will reach a point where uh, you get to – crossroads from the Strait of Malacca, to the Strait of Hormuz, to the Red Sea, there are somewhat disputes, the Arctic, and there you can get into sovereignty disputes, you can get into um, uh, just political realities where you're not getting along on some things. So uh, asking somebody to come to an international exercise, let's use Rim of the Pacific, because this just occurred. Rim of the Pacific, 24 nations, uh, come out and do an ex exor- do exercises with us. It is inconsistent for us to ask China to come and uh, let's let's work all together on uh, counter missile and uh, shooting torpedoes. Whenever when we very well know enhancing their tactics in that uh, they may time at one time may be shooting those things at us. But again, yeah, I mean you don't want to and you have to engage. But bringing a nation like China, like Russia, to rim of the Pacific to do humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, counter piracy, those other elements, and learning, helping them see the value of non-conflict, the challenges that are really extreme that don't even involve conflict or deterrence or trying to dissuade somebody in the South China Sea belong here, those sorts of things, that we have enough challenges in the world. We have enough challenges in the maritime domain. Uh, And they're frankly, without getting too dramatic, challenges to mankind, to all mankind that we have to work with. I mean, the there is something going on you call climate evolution without getting into climate change, you know what I mean? In capital letters, there's something going on out there, and it involves all of us. So, there are enough things to work together on, but we are not in synchronization on all priorities.
0: So, among allies, partners, even adversaries, uh, the principle seems to remain uh, that it's critical for the U.S. Uh, to remain involved in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and as you stated in your report, that it remains essential of uh, U.S. involvement for regional stability, at least in the immediate future. Um, it's striking, you, you also chart out that at least from 1973, uh, we've had decreasing levels of troop presence uh, overall. So how would you um, recommend to our leaders how to resolve the challenge of decreasing troop presence on one hand, uh, and on the other hand, the need for continued, perhaps even greater, U.S. engagement in the Indo-Pacific.
1: Sure. Um, so let's start with engagement. Um, engagement is certainly has a value at mill to mill. But there's a, there's a term used frequently by people in national security, a Department of Defense, and it's like the coin, like a dime, D-I-M-E. There's a diplomatic aspect, an information aspect a military aspect and an economic aspect to any campaign with another nation or group of nations. And trying to resolve something or influence somebody or dissuade somebody with purely military or purely economic, you get my point here, diplomatic, doesn't work. Uh, some people say diplomacy with a strong military as a, a, with a big shadow behind it is very effective and we saw that in the Cold War and we saw it after World War II and it is it is a fact, it truly is. So my point is this engagement has to be sequenced and coordinated with all of those elements. Uh, you will need economic, uh, like with China, let's take China just as an example. Military only is really a bad idea because you are headed toward potential conflict with as somebody I said is approaching to be a near peer competitor and some would say they already are. There should be an economic element to that, certainly a diplomatic element to it, information so that our requisite people aren't uh, attributing things to China that would be wrong and then vice versa. Uh, we should try to reach the Chinese people if we think, hey, you're – you're, you're, uh, and it could be the political dimension – has us all wrong. You know, Here's who we're, what we're about. And it, part of it is in sync with what you want, particularly the economics element. So that's what I mean by engagement. And, there, and we have to engage out there. We have to engage in order to influence. You have to use influence to dissuade and in some cases deter or shape their behavior. We are trying to shape the behavior of North Korea and Kim Jong-un. We are opening. We, we now have the D. The D of dime there, right? Secretary Pompeo and his minions are working that uh, element. We really don't want the military piece. It's, we're not ready for that, you know. But uh, there might be an economic piece. South Korea uses that. So you see what I'm saying in that. I think being simplistic in this, that's kind of how one can think that through and what what elements of DIME apply, uh, as many as feasible, hopefully. Are they in synchronization? Uh, yes, no, maybe so. Uh, When done correctly, it can be quite effective for a nation with the large economy like ourselves, with the large military like ourselves, with the social influence and principles of democracy and other things that we, uh, believe it or not, some people say, well, my golly, we're not what we used to be. We're not deemed as that. Boy, that's not what I hear. Of course, we have flaws. We have warts. We have issues. But deep down in, most people still see us. As the consistent guarantor of, of democratic ideals, and they understand that.
0: And as the consistent guarantor of democratic ideals, it seems that the U.S. is faced with, as you mentioned, multi general challenges, not just with other countries, but in naval security for a long time to come. So we've got young listeners. Uh, who tune in. We've got parents of young listeners who tune in. Uh, Putting your, perhaps, naval cap back on, do you have any advice for aspiring naval officers uh, who may be interested in serving?
1: Sure, I do. Um, It's not for everybody. Um, If 10 people join the Navy as a, you know, naval officer, um, the Navy needs maybe four of those individuals to remain for 10 years to 20 years. The other six, I would say the uh, a if you want to see the world, and it truly is the the, one terrific way to see the world, and see that as the old saying goes, and that's one of the amazing things about being this in this business for forty years, we are so much more alike than we are different. Yeah, you went to the event this morning, Dan, and we, as you mentioned, from New Zealand, Australia, uh, Brazil, and Japan. Uh, I got to know those folks because between their spouses and myself and my spouse, uh, we're trying to raise a family. We want our kids to have a better future than the one before. We want them to be free. We want them to be able to be as good as they can be. So my point is, it is an oppor- joining the Navy is an opportunity to be an ambassador in that regard. You learn a skill that is uh, unique. It is leadership It is understanding uh, people, how to lead them, how to understand that you should know what they're doing before you lead them. It is an institution founded on integrity, unconditional trust. Uh, You have to always tell the truth. You have to believe that somebody, when they tell you something, is the truth. And you have to trust people to fly off an aircraft carrier from zero to 160 miles an hour in three seconds, three to five seconds. To start up a nuclear reactor on a submarine or an aircraft carrier, when somebody says all the safety systems work, uh, you don't have time to go check all that. You have to believe that. To jump out of an airplane, if you want to be a special forces. Well, who checked that parachute? Are you going to do it? You don't have time to do that. You have to trust the individual. You have to trust the pilot that you're at the right altitude. You get my point. It's a, it is a, uh, a lot of work in unforgiving environments, but on the other hand, uh, fascinating how young people can pull together and run things uh, in an in, in uh, environment, if you will, of integrity, trust, and confidence. And it's, it's a diverse organization. It is meritocracy. It's not a perfect meritocracy, but it remains from, I've been out of the military now for three plus years and uh, it remains one of the better meritocracies uh, that and recognize as such that we have in our society.
0: Pulling from your 40 plus years of involvement in the Navy, how does an experience in the Navy today look different from when you first joined?
1: Well, their challenges are diverse for like many and multiple. Uh, when I joined the Navy we had one well enemy at the time, uh, the Soviet Union. There were other things going on uh, in a complicated world. I mean, China was not a friend, but China was a struggling third world nation almost at that time. We're talking 1975 uh, when I was commissioned. Uh, Today, you have a um, emerging Russia dealing with cyber, with what we call hybrid warfare, things just short of conflict. dithering in our election process, using social media to undermine us. You have an emerging China who benchmarks their military and what they want to overcome to us, looking to overcome us. And they're getting close in many areas of technology and in the military. You have uh, violent extremism. Uh, The largest subset of that is terrorism uh, from al-Qaeda to ISIS, which is still around out there. We still have drug problems. We talked about it this morning, which is so great to have somebody from Brazil who is the, they are the lead-er down there with Colombia to deal with that. That's still a growing problem. And those drugs, most of them, uh, greater than 50%, are headed for the United States. So as we talk about immigration, we talk about our narcotics problems, that is still there. So kids today are dealing with a world uh, that is, not very stable. It is less violent than the world I was in, believe it or not. There's there's less people killed through crime, through other things, through other elements, but it is unstable. And uh, in a way, it's exciting there are, because we have so many, such high technology and so many ways to deal with this. We just need to get organized to do it, lead it consistently. Uh, the leadership challenge are as uh, big or small however you want to look at it as they were back in my day people are so much smarter they have so many ways to know information they are not necessarily uh, any ha- have the corner market on common sense or willingness to uh, to do the right thing so we we remain it's an ethical challenge
0: so it appears at least the tools for learning the access to information are as complex and varied Uh, as the challenges themselves. Um, And so I want to thank you for this very wide-ranging in-deep discussion. Before we let you go, can we move to a lightning round and ask you two questions that should be relatively short answer? Sure. So keeping in the tradition of other CNOs, you've published a reading list uh, regularly for uh, servicemen and future leaders uh, to to learn and take action on. Uh, So question number one is what book would you recommend as a must-read for anyone interested in strategic planning? And this can be for business people, for military leaders, uh, even somebody working at the think tank. If there's a must-read book on strategy, what would you recommend?
1: Frankly, I would go to Mahan's book, Naval Strategy. Uh, it is. It has a, how do I say it, it, it has a strategy within it. Here is the naval strategy that I believe it is, which is a maritime strategy. You have to be engaged in the world, and you have to be a, a powerful Navy. But the essence of the development of it, why is it what it is, if you will, and the and the logical and comprehensive thought, that's where I would start. Uh, then there are many books that have emerged since then. But we are who we are, especially in the Navy, uh, because we we've – we adapted the Mahanian approach. I believe Teddy
0: Roosevelt was a big fan of that book. And FDR read that book twice when he was a teenager. Uh, So a lot of strategic thought there. So second question is, you've received a lot of books over the years, um, but what's the book that you've gifted most to others?
1: It's a book called The Admirals. um, And it was written to uh, discuss what made the the Navy's only five-star admirals. What were they about? Uh, what was common among them? What was different from them? It's about Admiral Halsey, Admiral Leahy, Admiral Nimitz, and Admiral King, who were all uh, quote-unquote stars of World War II. Uh, they came from different backgrounds. Uh, they all had sort of internal weaknesses. They had external weaknesses. Some had a big ego, some was known very well for being a humble person. Uh, some had a uh, background of wealth, and some came from a very poor background. Uh, some made mistakes early on. Uh, Emil Nimitz and was almost uh, as a junior officer, you know, ran a ship aground, and that was going to be the end of that, and he didn't. Then there's Emil Halsey, who made a significant error at the end of World War II and turned his fleet into a typhoon. Uh, that he had warning of, but he felt if this is worth the challenge, if I get around to the other side of that, I'll get into the Philippines and I'll wipe out the Japanese fleet. But instead, they hit the typhoon, they lost a lot of ships, and he was almost court-martialed. But you look over the, uh, as they say, the long background, the portfolio of performance, he was in fact given a fifth star. Some today still dispute it. So there's controversy, there's Admiral King. They said, well, Nimitz is nice a guy as he was, humble and all that. King was bombastic, suffered fools poorly, and uh, everybody has kind of a different background. Everybody may bring some strengths to this. I gave this book to new admirals uh, and generals in the Marine Corps to say, take a look at this book. I think it is, to me, one of the best compendiums of uh, leaders that we all know about, iconic people, and say, They kind of might be just like what you were. They went through some times when they weren't sure they could get to tomorrow, that they could make the next decision. You know, Nimitz's discussion when he went to Pearl Harbor and looked at what he was assuming. And they said, yeah, the the story goes, uh, President Roosevelt sent him out there and said, you go out to uh, Hawaii and come back basically when the war is over you know, and we're in Tokyo Bay. Well, literally we ended up like that, but that, that was an interesting thing. And, and he wrote, and he was very straightforward about his doubts in that. So I found it a, a fascinating book and one that I thought, folks, um, my old term, as I wrote in there, we need junior flag officers to be bold, confident, and accountable. And I think these gentlemen were
0: well, Speaking of leadership, Admiral Grinder, you certainly have no shortage of it, um, so we thank you for Thanks, your, Dan. Uh, appreciate your inspiration, your, your courage, and uh, absolutely sharing your insights here. Uh, so without uh, further ado, let me just thank you again, and uh, appreciate you coming to talk with us.
1: It's my pleasure.